Welcome to Drug Discovery News Talk Science, a podcast where we discuss the latest news in preclinical and translational research. Behind every medical and scientific advancement lies a harrowing story of mystery and discovery. Come with us as we share these stories and connect you to the scientific minds behind them. For the Drug Discovery News Custom Content Team, I'm Tiffany Garbutt. Gene therapy promises the possibility of replacing damaged and faulty disease-causing genes with functional copies, essentially rescuing disease-causing phenotypes and restoring individuals to health. At the heart of this technology are viral vectors, little vessels that leverage the evolutionary power of viruses to penetrate and shuttle genetic information into cells. Manipulating viruses to carry genetically modified gene copies and then producing large quantities of these viral carriers for gene therapy is not easy. Before any gene therapy can make it to the clinic, its feasibility and success largely hinges on critical early steps in viral vector optimization and production. In this episode, we'll explore the hurdles that researchers face in viral vector development and how one team overcame these challenges to produce a groundbreaking gene therapy for hemophilia. This episode is sponsored by Miris Bio. Miris Bio revolutionized transfection more than 25 years ago with the introduction of its flagship product, Transit LT1. Pioneering new delivery solutions such as Transit X2, Miris is a critical supplier of novel transfection reagents. With the introduction of Transit Virus Gen, Miris expanded expertise to virus manufacturing, supporting researchers from discovery to clinic. Now, let's talk science. In the list of possible diseases and conditions that can be treated with gene therapy, Hemophilia may be considered low-hanging fruit, largely because its symptoms can be attributed to a single known gene, the factor IX gene. Hemophilia is an inherited X-chromosome-linked disorder that affects approximately 1 in 30,000 boys. Individuals with mutations in the factor IX gene lack sufficient quantities of an essential blood clotting protein called factor IV. For individuals with hemophilia, even a paper cut can be dangerous. Affected individuals bleed profusely after minor injuries and may bleed spontaneously into their joints, causing severe joint pain and deterioration. Hemophilia treatment requires frequent injections with the factor IV protein to mitigate bleeding episodes. In 2010, researchers at St. Jude Children's Hospital, the University College London, and the Royal Free Hospital launched the first gene therapy trial for adults with severe hemophilia B. The clinical trial was a tremendous success. Four of the six clinical trial participants were able to stop their regular protein injections, and the remaining two participants saw a decrease in the dose and the number of protein injections they typically needed. In 2014, the team of researchers expanded their efforts and success to four more participants. However, to truly meet the demand for this therapy and treat more patients, researchers needed to change their viral production protocols to produce large quantities of the virus-carrying functional factor IX gene copies. To accomplish that, the research team recruited Brian Pierce, an expert in viral vector therapeutic production. For this episode, we spoke with Pierce, lead scientist in the Department of Therapeutics Production Quality at St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital, about how his team revamped their viral production pipeline to bring a new hemophilia gene therapy to a greater number of patients in need. Adeno-associated viruses, also known as AAVs, are ideal viral vectors for gene therapy. AAVs infect a wide variety of cells, produce only a mild immunogenic response, and can be manipulated to easily carry different genetic payloads. For hemophilia in particular, the factor IX gene fits easily into an AAV vector. AAVs also naturally traffic to the liver, 
where the factor IX gene needs to be delivered and expressed. Manufacturing large quantities of AAV, however, is no easy task. A single dose of gene therapy requires as many as 10 to the 11 to 10 to the 16th AAV viral genomes. We had the goal of treating more patients than we've previously had to treat. In the past, we've had an adherent cell-based process. We manufactured AAV and adherent cells in 10-layer cell stacks. We have done two to 300 of those at a time and purified the vector from those. And we've had enough for maybe 10 to 20 patients. For this trial, we needed to make vector for 40 to 50 patients. So that would have had us looking at anywhere from 500 to 1,000 of the 10-layer cell stacks, which would have been just a, a ridiculous amount of work. To meet that challenge, we had to modernize our process. We developed an entirely new process based on suspension cells and stirred tank bioreactors. Pierce and his team went back to the basics. To safely work with viral vectors, researchers often separate the various components of the virus into different plasmids. One plasmid contains a gene of interest. Another plasmid contains the proteins needed to form the outer shell or envelope of the virus. And the third plasmid contains the regulatory information needed for gene expression. Separating these components into separate entities makes the virus replication incompetent and ensures the safety of the researchers. To produce large quantities of the virus, researchers introduce these components through transfection to specialized cells that are particularly susceptible to viral infection and that are sturdy enough to withstand sustained viral growth. In revamping their technology from an adherent platform to a suspended cell culture platform, Pierce and his team re-evaluated multiple factors of their viral production process, including what cell lines they used and their plasmid ratios. They even considered the physics of adding the viral plasmids to a stationary cell culture plate as opposed to a liquid cell culture platform with suspended cells. We ended up modifying our process such that our process was finished and we thought we were going to go into production. And we had it working quite well. We were producing vector to a comparable level to how we produced it in adherent cells. We had the product that we made for our old clinical trial as our gold standard to compare a new product. And we found that our new product was not as functional. We looked at it in mice and found that we were producing a certain amount of factor nine with our previous clinical prep. And we were producing only about 60% as much factor nine with our more recent prep. So we had to figure out why that was. Adeno-associated viruses come in many different types, known as serotypes. Each AAV serotype targets different tissues in the body and possesses unique viral characteristics. In this case, Pierce and his team used AAV serotype 8, which has a proclivity for the liver. Infected cells increasingly secrete AAV 8 into the surrounding media as time progresses. Under normal circumstances, researchers would expect to collect more AAV8 viruses on day 6 than they would on day 2 from cell culture media. But Paris and his team observed the opposite. What we needed to do was harvest on day 2 instead of day 6. And this was a huge challenge because it required us to completely revamp the process that we had basically already finished. We determined that the product that was harvested on day 2 seems to be more functional than the product harvested on day 6. But our titers were a lot lower. Half of our product was in the cells that hadn't yet been secreted entirely into the media. So we had to figure out a way to boost our titers again. We had to um, figure out a way to lyse our cells so that we could recover the product that was still in the cells. That required a tremendous amount of time. 
Cells do not easily take up stray nucleic acids floating in the media. Cell membranes and the nucleic acids comprising plasmids are both negatively charged, so they repel one another. To convince cells to take up transfected plasmids, researchers add a chemical concoction, a transfection reagent, to coat plasmid components, neutralizing them and in some cases even imparting a positive charge. This helps plasmids to more readily cross cell membranes. Transfection reagents may be polymer-based, as in the case of the common transfection reagent, polyethylenamine, PEI, lipid-based, or in the case of the transit virus gen reagent from Miris, a combination of both lipids and polymers. We've screened a couple of different transfection reagents. That was one of the things that we had to modify when we moved from the day six post-transfection harvest to the day two post-transfection harvest. We were using a PEI in our initial process. And we found that when we moved to day two, using PEI, our titers fell by about half. That's when we started using the transit virus gen, which we saw even at day two gave us titers that were on par with or a little bit better than what we were getting with our day six process using PEI. So that was a pretty important change for us because we just wouldn't have been able to make enough vector using PEI with our day two process. Once researchers have completed the upstream steps of viral vector production, including optimizing their plasmid ratios, their transfection to reagent ratio, and their time to harvest viral vectors, they can focus on the downstream steps needed for gene therapy. Researchers need to perform a battery of tests on purified viral products to ensure their clinical safety. One key test involves evaluating the cells for residual host DNA. Because viral vectors need to be transfected into mammalian cells, that assemble and produce the final viral product. Some mammalian host cell DNA may get packaged inside viral capsids and may even co-purify with the final viral product. Remnants of host cell DNA from packaging cell lines may induce immunogenic responses and pose a significant safety risk. One of the big challenges that we faced after we had gone through our switch from day six to day two and completely revamped our process and thought we were good to go again, we found that our product contained a very high amount of host cell DNA compared to our previous clinical products. We ended up tracing that to the cell type we were using. The particular cells, for some reason, were just packaging a lot of host cell DNA into our AAV. So we ended up having to switch our cells to an in-house cell that we had previously developed. We found that switching to that cell line dramatically reduced the amount of host cell DNA. We also added a supplement to our culture and that further reduced the amount of host cell DNA that was being packaged into our capsids. And then we got a product that we thought was satisfactory from a safety standpoint. After years of troubleshooting the upstream steps of viral vector production at a small scale, Pierce and his team were finally ready to begin producing mass quantities of their viral therapeutic. They optimized their viral vector production for a 5-liter culture of suspended cells. For the next phase of their study, they needed to produce more therapeutic virus by subsequently growing and transfecting more cells in a large 200-liter bioreactor. Transitioning to a large bioreactor involves adjusting the power at which the bioreactor stirs the suspended culture. To do this, researchers rely on an equation that includes a constant based on the size of the bioreactor and the power that it needs to stir the culture solution. Once again, despite their best efforts to account for every possible variable, Pierce and his team met another unexpected roadblock. We had a double of a time scaling up, really. The first couple times we ran it, we were seeing very strange cell 
metabolism. We would see a, a huge drop in pH, dive in, in cell viability, and greatly reduced vector production. We thought we had done all the scale up correctly. We thought we were running our five liter reactor at a certain power per volume. And then we ran our 200 liter reactor, what we thought was the same power per volume. Well, it turned out that the, the constant that we were provided with was not suitable for the five liter reactor. We were actually running our five liter reactor at a much higher power level than we thought we were. When we did our first few runs at the 200 liter scale, we were dramatically underpowered. We weren't stirring nearly fast enough. What was happening is that the cells probably higher up in the vessel were being deprived of oxygen and were starving and dying. Eventually, with a lot of communication from our bioreactor manufacturer, we figured out what we needed to stir our 200 liter reactor at. So we cranked up the stir rate and we got results that were much more comparable to what we were seeing at the five liter scale. Our cell metabolism looked good again. Our viral vector production went back up, but there was a lot of us banging our heads against the desk. We went through so many challenges and we thought, okay, well, this is probably going to be hard, but we've prepared, we know what we're doing. And then of course, there's always one more problem that you run into. Pyrrhus's problem-solving days, at least for this project, are near an end. After years of optimization, the team has finally nailed down their viral production process. Pyrrhus estimates that by as early as next year, the St. Jude Children's Research Hospital team will begin treating patients and may even have some early data collected. After encountering and overcoming challenge after challenge, Pyrrhus and his team remain steadfast. They specialize in supporting St. Jude researchers in bringing their research findings to the clinic. Their efforts optimizing this gene therapy product is just one of many more projects to come. Solving the problems is a lot of fun. Running into those problems and then figuring out a way around them can get tedious in between because you keep doing the same thing with minor modifications, but it's really rewarding once you finally figure it out. I'm really excited for it to get into GMP manufacturing. Our process development team will get to be involved a little bit in that, which is nice. So we'll get to help with the tech transfer. And that generally means being involved in the first couple of runs to help our manufacturing team come to grips with the process. Getting it into GMP production is going to be awesome. And then, of course, when that product is released and the clinicians get going with the clinical trial, will be very exciting. The end goal for this project in particular is really cool. The people who are going to get the treatment for this trial, those folks in these low to middle income countries, are people who are not going to receive it very soon from the products that companies are making. To be able to make this product and get it into people who would otherwise never see anything like it is pretty awesome. The end result is going to be worth the headache of getting this product out the door. Thank you for listening, and a special thank you to this episode's sponsor, Miris Bio. This episode was produced by the Drug Discovery News Custom Content Team. Interview, script, and narration by Tiffany Garbett. Script editing by Christine Eibel, and sound production by Alan Coulier. If you enjoyed this podcast, subscribe to stay tuned for future episodes. Join us next time to keep talking science.